Hello everyone, I hope you're safe and I hope you're well. Thank you for joining me for today's episode, which is the first in a series of three interviews I'm going to be conducting on the subject of conscious living. Now, I'm super, super excited to have Dr. Gabja Tolakita with me today. Gabja is a neuroscientist, researcher, performance and well-being coach, and also the author of her recently published book, Why the F Can't I Change? Gabby is like the superwoman of the neuro world and just a really awesome person. She's a real hero to me and I'm absolutely delighted that she's here today and very, very grateful to her for taking the time to be here and share with you guys some of her wisdom and insights on the subject of conscious living. Can't wait for this. Let's get it started. So, Gabia, it's great to have you with me today. Thank you so much for joining me. No worries. Brilliant to be here. Um, listen, Gabia, I've had the pleasure of attending some of your talks. I've also been lucky enough to receive um, a very early copy of your new book, which is being released, I think, at the end of this month. I have to say it's absolutely amazing. It's called Why the F Can't I Change? Um, so I'd recommend anyone to read that book. Absolutely brilliant. Oh, brilliant. Um, thank you. <laughs> Gabby, what I would say from my experience of seeing your talks and, and hearing you sort of articulate the mechanics of the human brain, you do it in such a way, I think, that that completely makes it understandable to someone that isn't a neurobiologist or, or neuroscientist. So I guess just thank you for doing that. Thank you for being a great translator of such a complex subject. Yeah, no, so that's, to be honest, that's the thing I like most. I really love translating neuroscience findings from research papers into day-to-day -day language and in adding, you know, really relevant day-to-day -day examples to it because the main concepts of neuroscience aren't very complex. It's just they are being put in such a complex language and in the article that not, are not necessarily accessible for general public that they are, be, you know, it's really hard to, to get them to public, but most of the concepts about the brain can be really understood if, if enough, enough examples are given by anyone. Yeah, well, I think certainly when you articulate it and write about it, it's definitely understandable. So, so thank you. Um, before we dive into the brain science and the neurobiology of, of well-being, um, I just wondered if you could tell the listeners a little bit more about you. And, and I think more importantly, what drives you to do what you do? Well, in the, I chose neuroscience in the first place to understand human behavior and to understand why we do things we do and why we are the way we are. Uh, from doing research in, in three different countries, three different universities over uh, 10, 11 years, I realized that just sitting in the lab is not sufficient to understand it. Uh, so then I reached out for the training to become a business coach um, which then I combine my neuroscience insights with coaching tools to, 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 to kind of merge them into seminars and into specific coaching tools to really not only kind of help people to understand why their brain is as it is, but also to help people change their behavior in the direction they want to change. And the biggest thing I love is seeing people living the life they're happy with, you know, whoever that is, little children, elderly, uh, people in at any age stage in life 
doing the things they want to do and feeling happy with themselves. So that's the main reason I do what I do, you know, regardless whether it's my seminars, university lectures, my book, my coaching sessions, and my seminars in the companies. It's all tailored to help people understand themselves better and to help them be who they truly are. Mm, and it's brilliant that isn't it seeing the, the the journey that people can go on to truly become i guess for want of a better um, expression who they are meant to be right mm, mm, exactly beautiful thank you um i think it's really key um for anyone who is kind of trying to maintain and improve better mental health to to firstly understand the the fundamental mechanics of the mind um, and I know you do this so brilliantly well in your explanation, um, firstly in your book and also in your talks. And I wondered if you could just explain our brains a little bit to us, because as I understand it, Gabby, we have we have three brains, right? We don't just have one brain in our head. Well, actually, we have one brain, but we have multiple parts in it. So there is a oh, lot okay. of areas and they're responsible for different functions. Now, brain hasn't just appeared as it is all at once. Uh, it evolved over the hundreds, and thousands, hundreds of thousands of years. And it evolved in certain sequence. And certain brain areas we have now are much more ancient than others. And the most ancient brain regions uh, are responsible for breathing, heartbeat, digestion. We can group into so-called lizard brains or paleoreptilian uh, brain centers. And as the name implies, even reptiles have very, very similar brain regions which control their they, they systems as well. Now, a little bit new addition to the brain, paleomammalian, or for simple, mammal brain, um, was added on top of it in order to create um, emotions. And the whole point of emotions is to keep us safe. So mammal brain wants to keep you safe. And that part of the brain is what creates habits and what keeps us stuck in the old patterns. Because mammal brain loves familiarity. It loves predictability because that ultimately means safety given if the world doesn't change. So, so it wants us to just keep doing the same things. Uh, now the newest addition to the brain uh, is the wrinkly bit on the outside of the brain called neo, the neocortex. Uh, also called uh, the human brain. And I know that's a bit con you know, convoluted, the human brain within the human brain. Mm. But uh, the reason it's called so, because for humans, that's the most developed part in comparison to other animals. Now, uh, some like other, other mammals have some neocortex as well, but it's nowhere near as well developed as in humans. Therefore, it's called the human brain. And, and that area has, again, many, many different regions which do different jobs, but most significantly, it creates rational thinking, it creates personality, it creates ability to change and desire to change. And also, us being who we are and having sense of self, that's also created in those senses. Empathy, ability to understand other people's way of thinking is also created there. Mm. So, so those areas, as you can see, have slightly different agenda for our lives. So reptilian brain only wants us to kind of, you know, be alive, basically eat and sleep and not to worry about anything. 
mammal brain wants us to be the um, creatures of habit and do exact same things. It doesn't want us to change anything, even though things might not be working for us well. And human brain is pushing us to, to strive to become who we want to be. That's where progress and change and constant desire to develop comes from. Mm, fantastic. Amazing explanation. Um, just, just kind of going back to some of the stuff you said there, I think that mammalian brain, that limbic system, such a, such an important part of the brain, isn't it? And, and I think you alluded to it there where our, our, our emotions were, uh, reside. Is that right? Mm. Yeah, exactly. And it's a very powerful area of the brain. If, if it's triggered, it has a complete power to rule our behavior. Mm. And that's why we kind of have to keep in mind and keep this area happy, especially if we are undergoing any change or if we want to change something in life. Fantastic. So this, this incredible kind of human brain that we have, this neocortex, which I think from what you've said is capable of so much, you know, endless possibilities almost, um, creative thought, imagination, that kind of thing. It, it, it just bewilders me, Gabby, why we don't spend more of our time in that area of our brain, you know, living in our higher brain. Is that because the, the limbic system or the mammalian brain is kind of holding us back? Well, it would be inefficient to do everything using the human brain because it requires enormous amounts of energy. Also, it's much slower than the mammal brain. It takes because it does such a complex processing of information it takes longer to do it so imagine you're driving a car and then you see another car driving towards your opposite direction uh, if you were to compute with your your human brain what's going to happen next you basically you would crash in no time now if you allow your mammal brain to evoke mammal brain suddenly realizes danger evokes fear and makes you steer up to the to the left or to the right whichever way is better you have a chance to avoid that crash so mammal brain does things it's like rough and quick basically mm. it's not very accurate and it might be that sometimes you know it's just a bird flying and it detects danger and suddenly makes you steer away the car so sometimes it makes mistakes but it does it quickly. And that was very important for our survival as, as individuals, for humans and for other species as well. Now, in terms of um, other, other information requ requires that complex processing as the human brain does, but that's quite slow. And it, it can't really process a lot of things all at once. Um, so therefore, a lot of tasks which are kind of, um, we repeat most frequently, we have to delegate to the mammal brain. So it I basically see. doesn't occupy the, the... So imagine if you have computer and if you're trying to do a lot of things in parallel, computer would be really slow, wouldn't it? Yeah. And it wouldn't do any of those tasks quickly. So similar analogy apply. So we only, we basically need to save uh, the, the energy and the capacity of the human brain for the tasks which require that and delegate the, the task which we can to the mammal brain to make it quicker, more energy efficient. Uh, and also, when we are tired at the end of the day, and we might need some time to replenish, and therefore we might not be able to think really sharp and to do those human brain um, tasks effectively. So that area needs quite a lot of downtime. Also, is when we don't get over eat well, that area struggles as well. So we need other backups, basically, um, 
if you compare uh, different areas to different cars, you wouldn't drive Ferrari all the time or any other <laughs> supercar of your choice, right? Yeah. If you're just kind of dropping your child to school, you might, you know, just want to, to jump in, you know, even on the bicycle or, or on, on any vehicle. It doesn't have to be the fastest vehicle there. Mm. Uh, it might probably not be efficient fuel-wise either. But if you're going somewhere where you could actually push the pedal down, and, and, and do that, you might want to take your supercar for it. Mm. So I suppose it's about understanding that all of these parts of the brain are absolutely necessary and completely vital for our existence, but they all have their own place. And I guess we have to recognize when um, we are perhaps spending too much time in a particular area. So I guess just going back to the mammalian brain and how it controls our emotions, um, from 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 the you know very limited reading I've done, uh, Gabby, I'm I'm clearly not as um, not as um, educated as you in this area. But from what I know is that that mammalian brain it likes to connect to things, it likes to find meaning in things, and so it will connect to people or or things that sometimes aren't particularly helpful to us. Is that right? Well, that brain area loves familiarity. So it sometimes keeps on drawing us to the people and places which are familiar to us, which might not be good for us. Mm. Just imagine if you experienced a lot of criticism as a child, you might be drawn to be around other people who are critical, although you might not enjoy it and it might not be very helpful to you as a person. Uh, but when you hang out around nice people, just might feel like you don't belong there right so the mammal brain wants to push us back to what we're used to even if it's not very good for us um and, and also um mammal brain loves uh, safety in relationships it hates change so if you have let's say friends you have from school uh which, which your mammal brain is really used to it's pushing you to spend time with them as opposed to people who are maybe more like you. Um, the same happens with habits, with jobs. That's one of the reasons why people really struggle to change careers or to, mm. you know, they say, why can't I just do the job I, I would absolutely love? Is because it's too unfamiliar for you at this stage yet. You haven't proven to your mammal brain that you got it, that you actually mm. could create safety in it. So, so this area is kind of, needs to be pleased before we can actually do things different way. We need to keep that area calm and reassure it enough with using our rational thinking in order to make change. I see. I see. Makes sense. Um, and so our, our human brain then, our, our neocortex, you, you were kind of alluded to some of the things earlier. It's great for abstract thinking, making great choices, growth, learning, all of that. Um, what else is that human brain really good for? What else can it enable us to do? Well, the most uh, astounding ability of it is empathy, okay. compassion, uh, the mimicking actions and emotions of others, learning, growth, change, uh, sound decision making, especially if you're trying to overcome past mistakes. If you've been doing certain decisions and it hasn't led you to where you want to be and you want to start making decisions to adjust your journey, you need that area as well. Um, so this area is, is really important in relationships and in, in, in achieving our goals. 
when we want to grow and develop and learn. Mm. I think particularly important in the important in the time we're in at the moment, right, Gabia, in a time where, you know, it kind of started off last year where everyone felt a little bit more connected and had a lot of compassion with no judgment. But now mm. it just feels like there's been a shift and people are being a bit more judgmental and a whole lot less compassionate. So I guess we could all benefit from from being in this area a lot more yeah, now. And that's and that's the and that's normal that is happening because when there is uh, when we are not meeting all of our needs efficiently, which let's be honest, during the lockdown, it's quite hard to meet some needs such, such as socializing, you know, variety and so on. Um, then mammal brain kicks in and creates emotions we don't like. The mammal brain, unfortunately, hijacks our ability to be caring and compassionate. It, it can hijack our ability to, to even think about other people's needs. So if we want to have those abilities, we need to keep mammal brain uh, uh, soothed and happy first. Mm. And, also, and also, you know, like when there is uncertainty, mammal brain absolutely hates uncertainty. It brings the worst in mammal brain. And there has been quite a lot of uncertainty in the last year. So neocortex, is the only part of our brain which can actually deal with uncertainty. I can say, you know what? I don't know what's going to happen now, but no matter what happens, I'll be able to adjust. Resilience and agility and ability to adjust the path comes from neocortex. Mammal brain can't do those things effectively. And mammal brain believes about, you know, when there is uncertainty, if this doesn't happen, what I'm used to, I'm going to die. That's how mammal brain thinks. Um, and unfortunately, it creates a lot of emotions that's black or white thinking. Mm, that's so interesting. I think a lot of people will sort of relate to that um, in terms of the way that they've been feeling right throughout this time, because it has been a really difficult time, hasn't it, for, for everyone? Mm, mm. Um, I think the interesting thing about the world that we live in, Gabia, is that it's almost been designed to make us forget everything that's important to us. Um, so I think that plays a big part in, in, in some of our behaviors. Um, I do a lot of talks with people and I have a lot of debates with people around the, the topic of drugs um, mm -hmm. and antidepressants. So lots of me mechanistic medicines and recreational drugs. Um, and one thing I hear a lot of the time is that people want that quick fix. They would rather take the pill um, by way of the antidepressant to, to kind of dull down that mammalian brain. Um, I just wanted to understand your thoughts on that, if I could. Well, depression is very complex. So with depression, it not only affects our emotions, it affects our physical body. It completely changes the energy management in the body. So it makes us, everything we're used to feels 100 times harder when we're depressed. So it becomes, even if you knew what things would make you feel better, it's impossible to do them. In addition to that, anhedonia or inability to feel pleasure in anything is unfortunate companion of depression as well. So imagine if no matter what food you eat, no matter what, what, what uh, activities you enjoyed before, they give you no satisfaction whatsoever, and yet it's 100 or 1,000 times harder to do them. So it's very hard to do anything when people are clinically depressed. Uh, also, we, we know from brain scans that prefrontal cortex is less active when we're depressed. 
even when we're in depressed like state, which doesn't kind of yet qualify for clinical depression, you know, sometimes we can, uh, depending on the changes in brain chemistry, or when we go through somewhat harder times in life, um, we might feel in a depressed like state for, for a few days or a week. Um, and even then, our prefrontal cortex just doesn't work as well. Mm. And our amygdala is much more active, creating rumination, creating overthinking, and creating that all or none mammal brain uh, thinking patterns. And it becomes a vicious cycle because those thinking patterns evoke more emotions to keep us stuck. Mm. So depression is unfortunately a really, really hard thing to get out of. So usually uh, to, to achieve the kind of the, the most effective results, we need to do things to soothe the amygdala and to stimulate prefrontal cortex. So can you tell us some of the things that we could potentially do to soothe our amygdala, which of course is housed in our mammalian brain, and also stimulate that prefrontal cortex? Uh, things like... Um, antidepressants being designed actually to soothe the amygdala uh, but also things like being around people who just allow you to be who you are yeah. no matter how you feel is very good for soothing taking a hot bath um stroking a pet cuddling mm. your child or you know physical contact also with soothe amygdala listening to inspiring talks or inspiring audiobooks or meditation can soothe amygdala um, doing anything what kind of is sort of who you are. It could mm. be drawing, it could be knitting, it could be uh, watching traveling programs, something that kind of um, requires little effort. And I have a list of, of uh, ideas of, you know, in the book of what that might be. But just kind of just choose one really little effort requiring activity and just try to do it. And in some cases, medication is needed, unfortunately, but, but um, the kind of hopefully with it, when the time goes by uh, and amygdala is calmer, that's no longer needed. Now, if in addition to those amygdala soothing activities, we do activities that, that stimulate prefrontal cortex, such as writing gratitude list or what went well today list, uh, meditation or mindfulness, um, using sort of questioning your thoughts. So if you think, oh, everything is, is really bad, there is nothing good in my life. Okay, listening to that conversation and saying, okay, well, how about what did I enjoy today? What things actually weren't bad today? And just kind of, you know, just starting to question those thoughts or nobody likes me. Okay, well, let's think. And that's very much mammal brain, you know, kind mm. of thought. Okay, well, actually my mom likes me, I think. I can call her and ask her. Uh, I think my child likes me and so on. So starting to kind of not to buy into the mammal brain communication and challenge it will help you to stimulate your prefrontal cortex, which will give a chance. Then once prefrontal cortex is more active, it can help to soothe amygdala even further because mm. amygdala and prefrontal cortex are connected to one another. And very active amygdala can deactivate prefrontal cortex, but also prefrontal cortex can somewhat reduce activity in amygdala. So kind of, you know, it's doing both things could actually produce much, much better results. Mm. I love that, what you've said there are some really useful hints and tips on how to soothe that mammalian brain. Um, and, and I particularly love what you said around um, reconnecting with you, activities that sort of bring out who you really are. And I'm such a huge believer in that, in having those mm. open, honest, authentic 
relationships with people. And, you know, I think if we've got maybe two friends in our life or in our family that we can be completely ourselves with them, we're very lucky. So many people don't have that, right? But it's one of the, I always say, if you've got great friends, Gabia, you don't need therapy. Um, so I think it's, it's really important to find those true, honest connections. And in general, like a brain actually has a very amazing power of healing in um, mutually empowering relationships. Mm. So no matter what trauma we go through, we heal best when we are surrounded by people who see the best in us, who yeah. believe in us. And sometimes it's friends, sometimes it's children, sometimes it's partners, sometimes it's pets, mm. right? sometimes it's therapists. It could be either. It could be sometimes it's parents. So kind of getting it where you can, that's my advice. You know, it's, we, we might not be able to get like from, you know, where we, we would like to get. So for example, if you say, oh, I just want my husband or wife to be always supportive and never critical. In realities, if, if your husband or wife is not always supportive, then you might need to get it from somewhere else. Mm, absolutely and I think it's about recognizing those relationships that aren't particularly helping us with our growth isn't it and for some of us those relationships are really hard to cut off if they're well you know all of the relationships are helpful for growth but okay. are much less pleasant because mm. if a relationship is triggering something in you that you don't like it's, a, it's kind of you're learning something from it as well aren't you yeah, yes, yeah. But some relationships, we need to see what it triggers in us, us learn about it, and kind of go away from it in order to work on it, as opposed to just stay there and be triggered all the time. Uh, so, so taking every relationship as a lesson, but actually learning how long is this relationship meant to last based on what is it, that is taking relationships for what they are, basically as opposed to what we would like them to be. Yeah, I think that's such a positive way of looking at it, rather than saying, you know, that that person is just not helping me grow, therefore I'm going to cut them out. I think what you've just said is, is a much more positive way of viewing that. Sometimes critical people are the best teachers. I think you're right. I think they absolutely because are. If somebody criticizes you and says like, oh, well, you know, you, you, you're not, uh, you haven't got your finances together, for example, and it triggers an emotion in you, it might mean that you actually haven't got mm. your practices in order or else it wouldn't, wouldn't trigger anything. If somebody says like, oh, you're a bad lecturer at uni, I would say, that's your opinion because I have loads of evidence to say from my students that actually I'm doing a good job with them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. Those triggers are, are, are sort of like warning lights, aren't they, for us to go and do the work and delve a little bit deeper into why, we, why, why they're making us feel like that. Mm. Fantastic. So we, we talked about sort of the antidepressants and those mechanistic medicines to help soothe the mammalian brain, which I think absolutely play their part and have their place. Um, another common debate I have with people is around the use of recreational drugs. Um, often people tell me that they believe that um, by taking some recreational drugs, MDMA, etc., they are able to access the human mind. I guess people watch Limitless, right? The film. And they go, oh, I want a bit of that. <laughs> so what are your thoughts on that? Is that a myth? Is there any truism in that? Uh, well, it's quite complex. So there is limited amount of research still on recreational drugs. But what there is a lot of evidence of, that brain chemistry is very fine. And the brain chemistry as it is, it's, 
it's quite hard to reach equilibrium. And if you mess it up, it's very hard to get back to where you started. Mm. So I personally have never tried any recreational drugs, no intent to, because I like my brain being in equilibrium of brain chemistry. Uh, and uh, we have a lot of evidence um, for, for, for uh, so-called dopamine-inducing recreational drugs um, that once people use them, it feels amazing, but once they stop using them, they're very likely to be depressed mm. uh, because they have used up dopamine, uh, the pleasure-inducing uh, chemical in the brain, and it takes a long time for that to come back. But also, they desensitize the synapses for dopamine. So things which used to give them pleasure no longer give them as much pleasure. So it becomes a vicious cycle of using recreational drugs to feel okay. Um, and I personally don't wish that upon anyone. I think it's quite, it's quite a tricky, tricky uh, cycle to get out of. Mm, yeah. So I would be quite careful with the recreational drugs. Um, and whether they do help us to understand other states of consciousness and other ways of thinking, it's still questionable. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. I'd agree with what you say there. I read a book recently. I don't know if you've read it. It was by a guy called Gary Weber, Beyond the Mind. And it talked about a study that they did in terms of what, um, what, gave, the, what gave access to the highest levels of consciousness. And I think it was recreational drugs that came in third, sex that came in second, and then it was meditation that was number one. Well, you know, so if you have a choice of recreational drugs or sex, have sex. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> but I mean, you've only got to look at the Dalai Lama, right, to know that meditation certainly opens up some, some uh, doors in our mind that we, that we mm. perhaps need to get to. Mm. Yeah, and in, in general, meditation and mindfulness practices have amazing power to recalibrate your brain, both mm. the human brain and the mammal brain. And it also, um, there is a lot of evidence now that it increases brain plasticity and it helps the brain to be the sharpest and to replenish the brain chemicals. So you can actually afterwards get the things done using your human brain where you need to. Mm, definitely. I've been doing meditation now for quite a few years. I only do, you know, 10, 15 minutes a day. I'm not a master of meditation by any means, but I've certainly noticed the difference. Um, it, it just really helps, like you said, to stabilize the mind, I think. Um, so, and I, and I think, do you know what, we, all the tools we need to access those, those high levels of consciousness or whatever we want to call it are all within us, aren't they? We, we have all of those. Yeah, absolutely. But sometimes we're not still enough for long enough to actually notice what's going on there. Yeah. If we get in the rat race and we're too busy. Uh, for anything we can often end up running around like headless chicken not getting anything done of any value to us personally it might be you know not quite what we want to do so having that ritual of of i think 10 to 15 minutes a day is a perfect duration for meditation because it's long enough to be uh, possible to fit in in any no matter how busy you are i'm sure most people would be able to find 10 to 15 minutes a day to meditate but it's, it's long enough to reach that state. What's going, going on inside of me? Mm. What am I feeling now? 
what would I like to do? Who am I? Right? So that's in doing that regularly, hopefully, you'll hear the inner voice, which would be telling some valuable information. Are you in the career you want to be? Are you in the relationship which is working for you? Are you living up to your full potential? Do you feel happy about how things are? And that will come in whispers. It doesn't come in big bangs and shouts, you know. Um, so we need to get in the habit to be still enough and to allow that information to surface. Mm. I think, yeah, you're definitely right. You know, it, within that stillness, we, 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 we have that opportunity, don't we, to, to, to kind of almost know ourselves a little bit more. And again, I, I go back to the pandemic. I think it's really given a lot of people the time for introspection, self-reflection, and really do that self-inventory of, of who they are and what it is they want to do. So my mm. hope is that people mm. will come out of this a little bit more aware and, yeah, just with a greater sense of, of, of purpose, for want of a better word hopefully i hope so um gabriel just i just have one final question we we've kind of talked about some of the tools that would be really effective to help people sort of still uh, and soothe the mammalian brain and hopefully accelerate as well their their um their journey to their their conscious human brain but what other tools and techniques uh would you recommend to people who are struggling with mental health at the moment maybe one of the best things uh, which have ripple effects in every area of life is getting your sleep right. So, and that's a tricky one sometimes. If, if you are suffering from insomnia, th that might be not as easily resolvable. But during the lockdown, I noticed that a lot of people got in the habit watching Netflix all too late uh, stay, you know, there is TikTok and other things which, which are highly addictive. They highly are, addictive. I've fallen down those rabbit holes many a times. I just learned about TikTok recently. <laughs> I didn't know what that was. So I kind of did some research and, you know, two hours later. Yeah. I, I <laughs> so, so we get into habits um, of entertaining ourselves and and sometimes, you know, if in the evening you feel lonely or sad or unfulfilled, it's very tempting to escape into that world uh, of entertainment. But what that means, a lot of people have way too much screen time in the evenings, uh, perhaps too little exercise, perhaps nutrition might suffer as well. So kind of figuring out what can I do to get into the better sleep hygiene. So there is a few tips for that. So one, um, two hours before sleep, um, not to use any screen time. Even phone counts as well. So to avoid phone, iPhone, uh, iPad, um, laptop and, and TV two hours before sleep. And kind of getting into the calm habits such as drawing, reading a book, um, I don't know, making something, doing something with your hands or just kind of just chilling for a bit, mm. giving yourself a, a quiet moment. If you haven't had the time during the day to meditate, maybe that's a good moment as well. Or it could be, you know, tidying something up, maybe putting things in your wardrobe or whatever it is that it doesn't require, it doesn't kind of work your mind up too much. That could be a good habit. Another part that could help is limiting uh, coffee intake. So I always advise my, my clients not to drink any coffee after 1 p.m. Mm. And in fact, 
limiting amount of tea after about 5, 5 p.m. No, no, no black tea after 5 p.m. either. Uh, because caffeine takes a, an awfully long time to break down in the body and it keeps triggering uh, our alertness signals in the brain. Therefore, we might really not feel as sleepy. But also having clear bedtime. So setting, actually setting two alarms, one for the morning when you want to wake up, but one for the evening when it's time for you to start winding down and when it's time for you to go to bed. And like iPhones have that feature, you know, where you set your bedtime and it kind of starts giving, it gives you a little signal that it's time, it's, it's time to start your evening wind down. And I think that's very useful. So, and especially if you are struggling with, with mental health or emotional well-being or productivity or getting too snappy in relationships, getting sleep right could actually make a big difference. Because mm. just the lack of sleep alone or poor quality sleep alone makes every one of us into rather selfish and rather reactive people. And that, that's normal. It just means that your prefrontal cortex didn't have enough time to replenish. Because when we sleep, a lot is happening in the brain. The brain is clearing out any damage done during the day, is making sure that the brain is loaded with chemicals it needs during the day. Uh, so if we don't get enough sleep, that doesn't happen. So imagine if you're like, if you're running the marathon and you don't stop, you just keep on running, needless to say, your muscles would fatigue. So you need to stop to help muscles recover. And the brain recovers when we sleep or when we have just downtime. It's completely like doing nothing. Great advice, Gabby. I think sleep's such an important part of uh, maintaining good mental health. Um, I, I was reading this research study recently around how so many people are obviously now working from home. And, and of course, they're doing this, they're doing Zoom. Um, and people are really starting to become affected with their sleep. They're not able to sleep. And I think the study talked about how the little light in our computers was affecting our circadian rhythm in our brains. And so this is why people are struggling. Mm. So you're absolutely right. You know, reduce the amount of zooms, get rid of your phone before bedtime. Um, cause all of that's going to help. And also getting some exercise every yeah. day, like, just walks just, or anything physical. You know, I know we can't do gardening or any activities like that, but when we can in spring and summer, that's brilliant physical exercise as well, which getting physically somewhat tired is, is also a good way to get more sleepy and to regulate uh, our uh, circadian rhythm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's something about going back to nature, isn't there? Like we've all been throughout this lockdown and I know it's not, it could be because I can't go, but I really want to like get to the sea or get to the mountains. And I'm, I'm lucky I live in the country so I can go for nice walks, but I do feel very kind of drawn to nature and connecting with that again. Nature has an amazing power to soothe the brain. There is loads of evidence on positive uh, effects of nature um, and we have to take what we got. We do. Just going to the street and looking. I know the trees are not green now, but even then, just seeing trees. Now we are seeing snow today, for example. Um, I know when it's raining, it's a bit less pleasant. But just kind of forcing yourself to get out and go to the local park, sit by the river for a bit, have a cup of tea by the river, just watch, it, watch the river or a little streak, you know. Um, that would have a very soothing effect as well. 
Mm. I mean, all really, really simple ticks, but I think they're so effective, Gabia. So, so effective. Mm. It's about, it's almost a time where we need to forget all of the things that we thought, you know, all of the busyness we got involved in and just take it back to basics, right? Walks, mm. good sleep, good nutrition, connecting with the right people. I think they're all key ingredients for great mental health. Mm, exactly. Well, Gabby, listen, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Um, I could talk to you all day. Um, where can people find your new book? The probably easiest way is to find it on Amazon. Uh, I have audio book available on Audible as well. Uh, Waterstones bookshops are selling it online as well. And when the bookshops open, it will be sold in, sold in bookshops. Um, hopefully, once bookshops open, smaller independent bookshops will get copies of it as well. Um, so these are these are the places. There is also other other sources. But if you go to my website, www.mybrainduringtheday.com, one word, mybrainduringtheday.com, um, and there is a separate page book which I include all the links there where you can get it. And um, I, I got I had quite a few uh, listeners recently. Who, uh, try not to buy things on Amazon as much. Hmm. So, so I, I try to include all the links from uh, smaller sellers as well. And, and hopefully, once the bookshops are open, we can support our bookshops as well. Absolutely. I think the book provides a really great balance of all of that brain science, but you bought into it some really relatable examples as well, which I hope people will find really useful. So, buy the book. Um, it's, out, it's out on the 21st yes fantastic so yeah i'll share the link in in the bio as well so thank you gabia thank you for joining me today it's been a pleasure as i said um take care stay safe and keep yeah, continuing thank you. to it do was, it was really lovely being here and and all the best to everyone I love that chat with Gabby. That was so good. I hope you um, I hope you learned a lot from that. I know I did. That was the first in our series of Conscious Living interviews. Join me next time when I'm going to be joined by Mary Casey, neuro expert and founder of the ever-growing Brain Skills at Work platform. That's all from me for now. Stay safe, everyone, and I'll see you real soon.